0: Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, get your device out if you need to, and get with me to James chapter one. We've been doing a series now in the book of James in chapter one for multiple weeks. And I've told you from the beginning, some of the things I'm going to say you will not like. Um, this is one of those mornings where unfortunately I have one of those words for you. So buckle up because this will... Be a little bit painful, but uh, just like the prophets would say of the Lord, He wounds to heal. He is surgical in the way that He deals with us, when, whenever there is uh, the the experience of conviction, it is for God's purposes that He is doing something redemptive, even in what feels painful and in, uncomfortable in that moment. So James chapter one, we are at the very end of the chapter now. I'm going to read it, verses twenty six and twenty seven. We will pray, and then we will get to work. James 1, verses 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself... From being polluted by the world. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now that by your Spirit, through your word, you would be doing a work that would help each and every one of us, those that are gathered here in the garden and those who are watching online and those who will watch later, Lord. I pray that you would use this word to help your people. God, we want our religion to be pure and faultless. We want what we consider to be our faith to be something that you look on with admiration. We don't want our religion to be worthless. We don't want to deceive ourselves. So Lord, by your spirit, would you help each and every one of us to recognize any deficiencies that we might have? And then by the power of Jesus Christ, would you address those issues? Help us to be your people in this moment. Help us to live beautifully for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we are talking about religion. You see it there multiple times throughout those two verses. We're talking about this idea of religion or spirituality or, or, or faith or these different terms that we might use. But in verse 26, it's saying those who consider themselves to be religious. And then in verse 27, it says religion that God, our father accepts as pure and faultless. And he describes what that is. So we're talking about what our faith looks like in action. And James, again, is a pastor. He's addressing his people who've been scattered and he's helping them to think through what does true religion really look like? What are the features of true religion? What's the texture? What's the feel of true religion that God looks on favorably? And he's helping us negatively by identifying some stuff that isn't helpful here. True religion has multiple features about it. In fact, three listed here in this text. Now, this is not exhaustive. This is not comprehensive. This is not everything, but it's helping us to understand there are certain things that we could be looking for in our faith, in our religion, in our spirituality. Here they are. True religion has three different marks. One, restrained speech. Two, um, social concern. And number three, personal holiness. True religion will have these three different things. So let's get to work. Number one, restrained speech. When we call ourselves Christians, when we talk about our faith, one of the things that we have to be aware of is true religion will show up in the way that we communicate. It's it's an evidence. What we say gives evidence to the quality of our faith, to the reality of our spirituality, to our religion. We don't want to be people who have a religion that God looks at and he says, well, actually you're deceiving yourself and what you are doing is worthless. Look at verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Here's what we're talking about. If you are a Christian and if you want your spirituality to be beneficial to the world, if you want it to be beautiful, if you want God to look at the way that you are behaving and conducting yourself, one of the features of true religion is that you are careful with your mouth, that your speech reflects something of God, that you would take care with how you communicate, both verbally to other people and online as well, and any other place where you're doing your communication. We need to be a people who are restrained in the way that we talk. Now, we're not going to be perfect at this, but we want to be persistent in it. James will go on to say in, in, in chapter three that perfection in speech really isn't that easy to come by. He says, anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect. So, he's making a point here. You won't do this perfectly, but you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention to the things that come out of your mouth. You have to be concerned with the way that you are communicating about the world and to other people. In fact, James chapter 3, he expands this idea. He spends a whole chapter talking about speech, talking about human communication. He says many things. I'll paraphrase it briefly. He says, not many of you should desire to teach the Bible because those who do that will be judged more severely. Your words, you're going to be accountable for them. So to claim that you're speaking on behalf of God puts you in a situation of greater accountability. He says the tongue directs the entirety of the person. Even though it's this small thing, he compares it to a rudder of a ship. Even though it's a small thing on your physical body, it has huge implications. It directs the whole thing. Your tongue has that kind of power within it. The old saying, when we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me. That's absolutely false. The Bible says the exact opposite. Your words have the power of life and death. It's a small feature, but what you do with your tongue has tremendous implications. He says, this is, this is what he sees in his church. He says, with the tongue, this is James talking, with the tongue, we often praise God and curse people made in God's image. This shouldn't be We shouldn't come to church on Sunday, sing our songs, tune in online, sing along, and then go away from that experience and use that same mouth to destroy other people, to speak in a way that does damage to them, to speak words of contempt, to curse them. He goes on to say that we might think that we are wise. This is all in chapter three. We we might think that we're being so wise And the way that we're interpreting the world and the way that we're communicating about the world, he says, you might think that you're wise in your speech pattern when in fact, and this is him talking, not me. I don't have the courage to say it this way. He says, when in fact you're being demonic, you're talking in a way that is in alignment with the great accuser. You're talking in a way that is in alignment with demons. It is demonic. And he says, man, a lot of us, we think that we're being so clever, so wise, so helpful, when in fact what we're doing and the way that we're communicating is demonic. He says, true wisdom is humble. True wisdom is peaceable. True wisdom is manifest in being peacemakers, and he spells it out, peace-loving, considerate, full of mercy, and sincere. So we need to be a people who are careful with how we communicate. If you want your religion to be admirable by God himself, Take care with how you communicate. Now, speech is also revealing of stuff within us. In fact, what comes out of your mouth is actually just an indication of what's really in your heart. Jesus himself taught this lesson in Luke 6. He he says that, you know, you've got a heart and that's the command center of your life. And and he's talking about kind of who you are at the core. And he says, but your mouth is kind of a, a window or a glimpse into what's really going on on the inside. He puts it like this in Luke 6, 45, the mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. So if you find yourself angry and bitter and communicating with hostility, if you find yourself speaking with contempt, here's what's really going on. Your heart is on display. What's going on on the inside is now coming out on the outside. How you are communicating is revealing what's really going on inside of you now. So we need to be a people who are careful with how we communicate. And and I just want to take a minute to think through this. Why do you think this was a necessary issue to address? Why do you think James felt the, the need to write a letter and make human communication such a huge feature of it? Remember, his church was scattered. They were persecuted. They were uh, the church in Jerusalem. So they were you know, ethnically Jewish, and they would love their heritage. They believed in the Bible. They were trying to be faithful, but on account of persecution, they were scattered. And so now they're having to figure out what it looks like to live in a world that they can't really call home, that it doesn't have the same features that they, that they love and appreciate about their hometown of Jerusalem. They're having to deal with foreigners who think different from them. They're having to deal with other image bearers who don't walk and talk and think exactly like them. And I'm sure that there's a little bit of hostility toward their situation. I'm sure that they're frustrated by by the fact that they're not at home in Jerusalem and they're having to figure out life in a new normal. Now, I don't know what it looked like back then, but James apparently was aware that they were miscommunicating. And so he writes a letter to them and he says, listen, church you need to be a people who take great care and use restraint with how you speak. You need to be careful that you don't engage in communication that is actually tearing down. Now, doesn't all of that sound very familiar to our present situation? Christians, we have a moment right now where we can either participate in miscommunicating and misrepresenting God in anger and hostility and rage and just pour that all out online or to, you know, our close loved ones, and we just kind of interpret everything, but we do it in a way that is ungodly. And we're being reminded by James here that when we do this, we deceive ourselves and our religion is worthless. John Gottman is the founder and director of a thing called the Marriage Institute. Um, Basically what they do there is they invite couples to come and they put them in a controlled environment and they watch them. And the calling card from Gottman and his crew is they can predict with incredible accuracy whether or not a marriage is going to make it in the first five minutes. Now, I don't know how true that is, but that's their calling card. And he published what he calls the four horsemen of the communication apocalypse. Okay, you should hear that and go, that sounds bad. Um, He published the four horsemen of the communication apocalypse. Here they are. Criticism. Criticism. Contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling. Criticism, looking at somebody and always thinking you know what they ought to be doing better. Contempt is speaking to somebody without respect. It's belittling them. Defensiveness is when you're being communicated to and you're already backpedaling and trying to describe why you're right and they're wrong. Stonewalling, that's when you just kind of either physically remove yourself from a a communication event or emotionally check out. Stonewalling. Why am I bringing this up? I don't think that these four negative patterns are only useful in marriage. I think they're appropriate in all the different settings. If we engage in this kind of communication, not only are marriages in jeopardy, friendships are in jeopardy. Places of work are in jeopardy. The church community is in jeopardy. Our society is in jeopardy when we begin to communicate in these negative patterns. So here's my question for you. How much of your communication these days is godly? Let me ask it a different way. If you were to quantify how much of the talk that you're engaged in right now is negative, what percentage would you give that? Because if that's the case, what James is saying is your whole religion is being called into question and you might be deceiving yourself and your religion, here's his words, not mine, is worthless. So we need to be careful with how we speak. Secondly, we need to have social concern. A part of religion that is beautiful is the fact that God has built into the very fabric of the experience and it's a part of his character. God wants his people to be concerned with issues that affect the society listen to it verse 27 religion that god our father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress now you know most of us can agree that sounds wonderful we should as a church we should care for orphans kids who don't have parents we should do what we can and create ministries around that and do what we can as a as a church community to try to pursue adoption and, and other structures and other things that could be support for orphans. We ought to also care for widows. I remember reading, um, well, preaching through First Timothy and, and youth group and just being uh, really devastated by the fact that we had a widow. Uh, one of the students' parents was a widow, and, and I just felt like I wasn't doing what the Bible was telling me to do. We, we can hear those words, orphans and widows, and we can go, yes, that's exactly what we should be concerned with. That is a beautiful religion that pursues these different things. But if we only keep it to those categories, we miss what James is saying. He's not only, t- he, he is talking about orphans and widows, but he's also talking about the socially disadvantaged. Here's why. They were living in a patriarchal society. It was a male-oriented society. Males were the ones who had all of the, all of the power all of the resources, all of the influence. So when you talk about orphans and widows, you are talking about people who are socially disadvantaged. They don't have the same opportunities. They they don't have the same experience. They don't have the same resources available to them. And so James is saying pure religion moves toward that. Pure religion is willing to look at people who are disadvantaged and, and to not try to say, that's not real. Guys, right now, we are so, and I'll bring this up again later, we're, we are so, I'll say the same thing again later. We're being discipled by what we're, what we're seeing in our feeds, what we're paying attention to in, in the news cycle. And the Bible is reminding us, true religion actually does care about the disadvantaged. So if we're going to be God's people living in a way that's pleasing to God, we have to go after those issues. We have to do something about those issues, not because we're being politically co-opted into something, but because this is what the Bible says. So we need to be looking after those who are disadvantaged. Now, looking after is more than just kind of giving a head nod to its importance or significance. Looking after means you got to get dirty. You got you to gotta do something about it. You have to care about something. So my neighbors um, know that I often work from home. I've got a home office. And so if they're both gone and the kids are gone, they'll text me and say, hey, could you let the dog out? And I'll say, you know, I, I want to be a good neighbor. I'll re- reply, absolutely. I'm happy to do that. Now, I, I'm sorry to say this. I'm going to lose a lot of you when I do this. I grew up here at the tree farm. I like to say I was raised by a pack of golden retrievers because I kind of was. Um, I love dogs, but I don't feel the need to own one. I don't feel the need to take care of one or pick up its poop or allow it to chew my stuff up. So I'm happy to visit the farm, but I'm not really a dog person like all my siblings are and all their families are. Um, So I'm sorry, I know some of you are like, man, I didn't know Corey was such a horrible human being. Um, So I'll say to my neighbors, yeah, sure, that's, you know, I'll let your dog out, no problem. So I'll go over there and put the collar on, and go outside, and the dog and I, we have this mutual understanding, you know, it's like, I'm here, because I have to be, and you don't like me, I don't, you know, it, it's mutual, and so one time, I'm out there, and the dog just kind of looks at me, and, and is just kind of marching around, and lays down, like it's going to take an afternoon nap, and I'm like, come on, I got work to do, uh, let's get this thing moving, so I go over toward the dog, and I'm trying to, you know, get it to go to the bathroom, and do what it needs to do, and like, I will punt you. (laughs) I won't. Um, My neighbors are listening. I promise I won't punch your dog, but pray for my self-control. But I let the dog out and we do the thing and I get back inside. Now here's, here's the point that I'm making. That is not looking after the dog. That's just doing kind of the obligatory, like, I want to be a good neighbor thing to look after their dog would, would look and feel a little bit more like this. If you guys need to go on vacation and you can't find you know, somebody to watch the dog, I'll take it to my house. I'll feed your dog. I'll love your dog. I'll care for your dog. That's what James is telling us to do. He's not just saying, hey, care about issues, you know, social issues in the world. He's saying, do something about it. Look after those who are socially disadvantaged. Take action upon this reality. We need to go beyond simply tipping our, you know, tipping our cap to this and going, yeah, social, social justice. We, we should do that. That's a good idea. We need to go beyond that to something more substantial. We need to not just talk about it. And in fact, in, in chapter two, verses 15 and 16, it puts it like this. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is that? We don't just want to say, yeah, social justice, we should do something about it. We actually need to look after those who are disadvantaged, take personal responsibility. Now, when you do this, it'll get you in trouble, but we must. It's what the Bible calls us to do. The, the late missionary, Leslie Newbegin he puts it like this. He says, it's not enough to deploy good Samaritans around the place. We must also guard the road. Do you guys remember that parable that Jesus told? He said, you know, a Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers and they beat him. They physically assaulted him. They stripped him. They took all of his stuff. They left him for dead. And then religious people start marching by. A religious leader comes by, sees him in the road and says, ooh, not my problem and walks around on the other side. Another religious leader comes by, sees the man, walks around on the other side. And in the story, the enemy shows up, a Samaritan of all people, the worst of people. And the Samaritan looks on this man and he takes him and he puts him on his donkey. He bandages his wounds. He takes him to an inn, and he provides care for him. He financially provides for that, that individual. And, and so Newbegin is saying, we need that for sure. We need good Samaritans. We need to be able to say, the Bible is true. We need to love our enemies. So let's do that, and let's get a lot of people doing that. But also, New Begin is pointing out, we shouldn't only do that. Why not change the dynamic of the road so it's less dangerous? Why not do what we can to try to change the situation so that less people will fall into the hands of bandits and robbers? Now, when we start to do this, it will get you in trouble. Archbishop Cameron, he put it like this. He said, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. You want to do something nice, a one-off experience, feed somebody, volunteer, do those sorts of things. People will pat you on your back. This is awesome that you're doing this. You are, you are so noble. You are so good. But he goes on to say this. When I asked why they are poor, they call me a communist. When we begin to think about the brokenness in our world and what we could do about it, most of us, I mean, almost everybody I talk to thinks, yes, we ought to be doing good deeds. But when we begin to think about what kind of social reform could we pursue together, that's when we get ourselves in trouble. Now, this isn't unique to the archbishop. It isn't unique to Leslie Newbegin. Jesus himself experienced this. Do you remember when he started his public ministry? He's in his hometown. He's going to church. He's in synagogue. He goes, hey, hand me that scroll. It's the scroll of Isaiah. He stands up opens it up he finds the place where it talks about issues of social justice that the bible has been proclaiming from the very beginning and he says i am here to proclaim good news to the poor freedom to the prisoners recovery of sight to the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the lord's favor and everyone's like we love this dude we we like this guy he's saying he's going to do this ministry of justice and then they say well what does that look like what do you mean exactly and he says well actually i'm going to have to take my show on the road I'm going to leave Nazareth, and I'm going to go to other places to people you don't like, and they're going to experience the kindness of God. And they say, kill this guy. Let's stone him. If you will pursue issues of social justice, it will get you in trouble. But you have to do it. The Bible all over the place tells us it is a key feature of being the people of God. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 to 16 are talking about the religious activities of the people of God, worship songs and rituals and all these different things and noise and, and pomp and all this stuff. And it's saying, it goes on to say the same thing that Amos will say later. If you do all of that, but you don't do social justice, this is just noise. Isaiah 1 it says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. If we want our religion to be what it ought to be, we have to care about issues of social justice. Now, here's the third thing. The third thing is that we need to pursue personal holiness. And this will will be brief, but it needs to be said. In verse 27, it says, pure and faultless religion, it goes on to say, is to keep oneself... from being polluted by the world. We need to be pursuing personal holiness. So we have to be, the church has to be socially engaged in, in, you know, matters of the world, but also we have to be personally engaged in the pursuit of holiness. Now, both of those go together. The church has struggled with doing this. Often it ends up being one or the other, but the Bible holds them together and says, no, it's both. You, you care about issues that are social concerns and you care about personal holiness, and these go together, hand in hand. So we need to be people who are doing that, who are socially concerned and pursuing personal holiness, who are keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. Here's, here's kind of the imagery. When you come into contact with a contaminant, it affects you. I was... Uh, My parents, this was a long time ago, but they built this little area that was like a workout room and then I kind of hijacked it and I was like, I'm going to live in here. I'm going to put my stuff in here. The problem was they put down rubber floor mats for the flooring. So night one, I'm sleeping in there and I just wake up and I'm like, I can't breathe. Everything smells like rubber. And then all my stuff for months just smelled like rubber. Um, This is kind of painting that picture that Christians need to be able to figure out a way to engage in the world without becoming like the world. Again, this is something we've struggled with. We've Often the church ends up looking like the society in which it resides, and that can be prob- problematic. When the church is no different from the watching world, what good are we? We need to be people who keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. We need to be careful that we are doing things differently. That if somebody were to observe us as individuals or us as a church community, we need to look different than the world. I don't know what to say other than we are being tremendously discipled. The, the, it, it, it's, it's really unfortunate. I mean, it's really discouraging as a pastor. I think most of us are more discipled by social media than we are by the Bible. So your conclusions and your interpretations and your posture toward the world right now is the same as a big Portion of the world right now. We need to be different. We need to, we, the, the church, we have this unique ability to be different. And that's who we're being called to be. So maybe, here's a, an idea, and it's kind of wild, but maybe we fast from social media for the next couple months and we just kind of make, make it an ambition. Like, I don't want everything that I believe about the world to come from other people's opinions and interpretations. Or maybe we say, that's not realistic, core. maybe we just say, well, then here's, let's try this. Let's try to read the Bible as much as we read social media. You go, good luck, right? But why don't we try to be a different people, a people who are pursuing personal holiness and who are reflecting God to the watching world? Because James is telling us, if we're not doing these things, our religion is worthless if our speech isn't different, our religion is worthless. If our concern for the socially disadvantaged doesn't look more like Christ, our religion is worthless. If we're not pursuing personal holiness, our religion is worthless. So you might be asking, okay, Cor, I really don't like this message, but what do I do about this? What do I do? If my religion is lacking, which it seems to be the case, according to what the Bible is saying here, what James is saying here, then what do I do? How do I change? I mean, do I just try harder? Do I just try to do more stuff, do these things in a a greater degree? The truth is, the way that we change, and this is all throughout the scriptures, this is kind of the, this is Christianity 101. The way that we change is not through our own personal efforts, it's through looking at, paying attention to, and believing in Jesus Christ. The way that we change is by the work of Jesus Christ in us. The more that we worship him and adore him and come to understand him, the more we we begin to reflect him. I'll show this to you in the context. If you just look back up in the previous paragraph, it tells us how the Bible works. It tells us that we look at the word of God, we open up our Bibles and we look at the word of God and the word, James says, is like a mirror. The word is like a mirror that's doing something to us. We're looking at the mirror and it is having an effect on us. Look at verses 23 and 24 of the previous paragraph. It says, anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So the word is supposed to do something to us. It's supposed to show us who we are. It's supposed to reveal something to us, and then we're supposed to live in light of that. So what does a mirror do exactly? It gives you a reflection. You're able to see something that you can't normally see. You're able to observe something that you might not normally be aware of. Let me... If I, didn't, if I steered you away with the puppy illustration, I'm going to win you back right now with pity. Last night, I was looking in the mirror, and I thought to myself, my eyebrows are bushy, so I should trim them. I'm getting old. This is a weird thing to have to figure this stuff out, but uh, I should trim my eyebrows. Grab my cheap little trimmer, go like this, look down in the sink. Oh, no. I call for my wife. Ash! Come here real quick. My eyebrow trimmer was set to, you know, it's a beard trimmer. It was set to, the guard was set to one. It needed to be a three or greater. I shaved off my eyebrows. So you're like, wait, you're like leaning forward right now. Yes, this is like painted on. This is not a real eyebrow. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm seeing something. Yeah, yeah, that's my life. I'm seeing something and I'm realizing Yes, I could get that feedback from you guys. I could come to church and you guys could be like, dude, what's what's with this? Um, And I would have some sort of awareness. But when I look in the mirror, then it becomes real to me. It becomes real. When you open the Bible and God begins to show you something, you call yourself religious. You call yourself spiritual. You call yourself a Christian. But your behavior is revealing that it is not the case your religion is worthless. You look at that and you go, what do I do? What do I do? Well, the same mirror gives you that confidence that you'll need. The same mirror not only reveals something that's you know, missing, it also shows you what Christ has done for you. So it shows you how sinful you are, but it shows you your savior and how great he is. And you look at the Bible and it shows you Jesus Christ and it gives you confidence, not not just in yourself, but in what he has done for you. The Bible is about Christ. And so if you're asking what is true religion, true religion, Christianity 101, it's Jesus. It's him. It's what he's done for us. And when we look at him, when we go to the word over and over and over again, and we see the person and work of Jesus Christ there, It changes us, and we become believers in him, and we become people who engage in the world like him. The next verse, after what we just looked at, in chapter 2, verse 1, it's the same thing. Now he's going to apply it. He's going to apply these different concepts. That's the rest of the book. He's applying what he has introduced in chapter 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. He's, he's reminding us, here's who we are. If, if you feel like your religion is not what it ought to be this morning, here's the solution that James is giving you that the entire Bible gives us. It's to look at Jesus Christ and to believe on him for your salvation and for your transformation. It's to look at him and by looking at him to be changed from one degree of glory to the next as we worship him. So it's all about Jesus, the religion that is pure and faultless is to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then obviously, there's evidence. You begin to reflect it in the way you communicate. You begin to reflect that in your concern for the socially disadvantaged. And you begin to reflect that in your care of personal holiness. And all of that is pleasing to God. So I'm going to invite the band to come. And I'm going to invite you to stand And I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to continue his work in our lives right now. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that by your spirit, you would be doing that wounding and healing. That we would be both convicted of the deficiencies of our faith, the deficiencies of our religion, but also that you would grant us gospel confidence because we're not looking to ourselves to solve all these issues. We're looking at you. We thank you, Jesus, that while we were enemies, you died for us. We thank you that you showed us what it looked like to live with careful speech and social concern and personal holiness, and you did all of that for us. Lord, I pray that every person who can hear my voice right now would believe on Jesus Christ for salvation and worship him and become like him. And I pray for our church, God. As I've been all along, I'm praying that we would become a community of faith that beautifully commends our Savior to a watching yet broken world. Help us to do that, please, in your name. Amen.